0: The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: Five.
0: I think we'll hear sound of hammering, and that will be the last nail in the coffin of the Conservative Party. Four. I actually think that the Tories would be in with a better chance if Boris was still leader. I mean that's how bad things are.
2: My view is that we have a force at the heart of government who want to resist the mandate that was given by the public to the government in 2019.
1: Rishi Sunak has got to where he is, basically, by being good at office politics. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson.
0: Hello. And
1: me, Liam Halligan. As if there isn't enough going on already what with the cost-of-living crisis and war in Ukraine. Now the Conservatives have embarked on a fully-blown identity crisis, as senior figures break ranks, calling for lower taxes, a smaller state, and the determination finally to tackle the small boats crisis. It's as if the impact of the local elections two weeks ago, Alison, in which Labour didn't do brilliantly, but the Tories secured a lower vote share under Rishi Sunak than under Theresa May in 2019, is finally sinking in. Tory big beasts are now openly campaigning, if not for a change of leader, then certainly for a very definite change in the direction of policy. As millions more are dragged into higher tax brackets, there's a sense that Britain's squeezed middle, the not poor but not rich either masses who make this country tick, are very much in the firing line. So often natural Conservatives, this silent majority, whose whims typically determine general election outcomes, is starting now to speak out. You've written a howitzer of a column co-pilot, taking the Tories to task, not least on the subject of immigration. But amidst the outrage, I also enjoyed your pen portrait of two mates taking part in the Leeds Marathon. A reminder, as you wrote, of what goodness men are capable of.
0: Oh, I'll start crying if I talk about it. I don't know if listeners saw... Some wonderful photographs in the papers on Monday of Kevin Sinfield, who was the former captain of Leeds Rhinos Rugby Union Club, now an England rugby coach, actually. And Kevin was running the Uh, Rob Burrow Leeds Marathon, named for the guy he was pushing around in a specially adapted wheelchair. Rob Burrow was the scrum half when Kevin was the skipper of Leeds Rhinos. They played together very successfully for many years. And very sadly, in 2019, Rob was diagnosed with the horrible motor neuron disease. And since then, Kevin has been running almost constantly, as if to get the rage and anguish out of his system. I think that his best mate has been subjected to this cruel fate. I think I described it, Liam, as one of the best kind of goal kicks against a cruel fate. Anyway, wonderful pictures of Kevin Sinfield taking Rob Burrow out of his wheelchair and carrying him across the finishing line. I think everybody was extremely moved by that. And I think that at a time when friendship and brotherhood is in short supply. We should celebrate the very love, actually, I think that was the word, love, beautiful, beautiful, tender friendship of one man incredibly healthy in the prime of life and his lovely friend withering away in his arms. I
1: thought it was beautifully written, Alison. I found that footage extremely moving as well. The way Kevin Sinfield scooped up in his huge arms his mate, Rob Burrow, Both of them, of course, world-class athletes in their time and carried him across the finishing line. I think we can safely say now, without wishing to be too cynical, that Kevin Sinfield, England defence coach, is now officially your new crush.
0: (laughs) He can carry me across the finishing line any time, I tell you. (laughs) No, it's absolutely wonderful. And of course, particularly <laughs> cheering when not much brotherhood's going on in the government at the moment. In fact, I think fratricide is on the menu, co-pilot. What do you think? I think so, Alison. I mean,
1: maybe we were a bit slow off the mark last week. Surely not. I mean, obviously, I had better predicted powers <laughs> than you when it came to that. I wasn't going to mention it. But to your credit, you said that you think... Rishi's got no hope. Mm. And I said, and some listeners have reprimanded me for it, that even though I didn't like the direction of his policy, which I don't, I do think the Tories could recover. That doesn't mean I back the direction of his policy, I repeat. But I think what's happened since then is that the scale of the Tories' failure at the local elections in England. And, of course, we've still got Northern Ireland to come. Those elections in Northern Ireland, local elections, are being run on Thursday, the day the Planet Normal is released, the 18th of May. So we need to be a little bit careful about what we say in terms of representation of the People's Act and so on. But I think since those local elections in England, the scale to which the Tories failed, getting less vote share than under Theresa May, even the local <laughs> elections, which did for Theresa May finally forced her out, albeit amidst a Brexit psycho drama. Yeah, you are now getting really big Tory bees, as I said at the beginning, speaking out. You've interviewed one for today's episode, which we'll hear from soon. But what do you make of almost open defiance of government policy, even by cabinet ministers at these sort of various Tory public thinkings that have been going on? earlier this week?
0: I think there's definitely a split now, slightly akin to the Labour Party split. We've got the sort of Jeremy Hunt, you know, immigration is fantastic because it'll boost my dreadful GDP numbers, never mind about the impact on public Services or communities. It's all grist to the globalist mill. And interestingly, we've seen two major Tory gatherings this week. They looked quite a lot like party conferences, to be honest. So we had the National Conservatism Conference in London. Now, this is quite an interesting group. It has its origins, sort of brainchild of an American-Israeli writer called Yoram Hazony, I think. And it's basically attached to this sort of idea that the nation is a core component of conservatism. And I suppose what to the distress of me and many other conservative voters, we've seen an emphasis on on globalism and moving away from the sort of families and rootedness, which I see as the heart of conservatism. So that conference in London with people like Suella Braverman, Miriam Cates and and Danny Kruger, indeed, who we'll be hearing from later. They were, I think, trying to return the Conservative Party to its kind of heartbeat. Also, Liam, very interesting for the point of view of Planet Normal listeners, Lord Frost, David Frost, patron saint of Planet Normal. David has indicated a willingness to go on to the candidates list. And if they give him a safe Tory seat, if indeed there is such a thing as a safe Tory seat in the United Kingdom. I'm not convinced there is, but David is a prime mover and was at this national conservative conference and I think we're starting to see a rather interesting group of thoughtful, true conservatives coming together who feel that the party has strayed quite badly from conservative values A view which you know liam as well as i do this is 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 very much the consensus amongst planet normal listeners and also just a couple of days before in Bournemouth, we saw the Conservative Democratic Organisation having a jamboree and they are campaigning to ensure the Conservative Party is representative of the membership and fairly represents their views. Now, that's code for how dare you kick Boris out after we voted for him and he won us a fantastic election victory and how dare you kick Liz Truss out after we Voted for her, so there's a lot of kind of quite aggrieved people, but it's attracting some big hitters like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Priti Patel. So they would be, I suppose, seen on the further right shores of the party. But I do think this is all happening. They would deny it strenuously, but being seen, you know, having an eye on electoral defeat in 2024, and who's going to come forward out of that sort of maelstrom? Are we going to have a Conservative Party? Is there going to be a new party? So I do think now we're starting to see the beginnings of the battle for the soul of the Conservative Party. And for me, the big thing of the week, which I, as you say, blasted about in my Telegraph column, was immigration, because this time, next week, Thursday, next week, I think we'll hear sound of hammering co-pilot and that will be the last nail in the coffin of the conservative party when immigration figures net immigration figures are predicted to be somewhere between 770,000 and 970,000 and if you bear in mind ladies and gentlemen that they never in the Tony Blair era got higher than 275,000.
1: This does feel like a big moment for the Conservative Party. We're, interestingly, a distinction I tried to make at the top, I think is important, is no one's openly agitating for another leadership election. I think even the most aggrieved members of the Tory backbenches who have attended both these sort of renegade conferences, even they aren't talking about you know submitting letters to... Sir Graham Brady, or the successor to Sir Graham Brady, to have another leadership election, I think they 've basically resigned themselves to the fact that Sunak is going to lead them into the next election because to have another change at the top would look to the rest of the country as just insane, however well reasoned it was within the minds of the conservative parliamentary party. so I do think they 're going to go with sunak, but what I think they 're trying to do is not change the leader but change the policy direction by scaring the Prime Minister into making some big moves and going against his instincts to be a kind of consensual, feather-smoothing, institutional-type person. Rishi Sunak has got to where he is basically by being good at office politics, by not unduly upsetting people through the institutions, whether it's a big public school, investment bank, or whatever it is. But the question now is, is he a leader? Is he willing to shape those institutions bending them to his own will, be it Downing Street, the Treasury, the civil service as a whole. And you get the feeling that he isn't. And that's what really irks a lot of Conservatives on the backbenches, and indeed quite a lot of the country. And I would say a lot of the swing voters that I was talking about at the top of this show, because they do feel a period of grown up leadership is now required to lead Britain to a better place, a bit like it was required in the late 70s and the early 80s. What with the cost of the living crisis, what with inflation still hanging around for a long time, what with our institutions being challenged. And we've been talking about the parallels between that period and now, Alison, haven't we, for months and months and months. So it's interesting to me how Rishi Sunak is going to respond to these calls. These aren't calls from the wilderness. These aren't people, you know, still in the jungle 10 years after the Vietnam War has ended. These are pretty mainstream conservative people. They'll be dismissed by a lot of the media class as far right, which is absolutely preposterous thing to say that undermines what people on the far right really are, how egregious they are. These people you know, on the right, the Conservative Party aren't far right. They speak for millions and millions of people. They speak for small business owners. They speak for hardworking families who are striving to do well. They speak for a lot of the people who get up early in the morning, day in, day out, and make Britain work. And how Rishi Sunak responds to these challenges is really going to shape, I think, his premiership and the future trajectory of this country. A cabinet minister told me quite recently that in their view, Rishi Sunak has what was described as a glass jaw. He isn't very good at taking criticism. He isn't very good at taking challenges to his authority. This is clearly a challenge to his authority, this kind of double conference onslaught. It isn't a coincidence that these conferences are pretty much at the same time. You know, cabinet ministers were speaking at these conferences, not least like Michael Gove, keeping his options open as ever. <laughs> As well as many, you know, until very recently, cabinet ministers who are meant to be mainstream conservatives, some of whom you've mentioned. So how is Rishi going to respond to this? That's the really interesting thing to me. And if he was a shrewd politician, he would understand where a lot of these people are coming from and give them at least some indication that he's listening.
0: Yes, but he hasn't got time to respond. He can make all the noises he likes. But this figure next Thursday, if it's, you know, the vast net immigration figure, this is an epic betrayal of millions of voters. The 2019 Tory manifesto said it would be getting immigration down. <laughs> I mean, the, the the rate of it, the, the scale of it is completely outrageous. It's not down to the tens of thousands, it's down to the hundreds of thousands. <laughs> it's down to the hundreds. Oh, it's under a million! <laughs> and there's been huge cynicism. I mean, I know all these I actually think that the Tories would be in with a better chance if Boris was still leader. I mean, that's how bad things are. At least he's got some oomph. But what Boris fans forget, conveniently, is that Boris was extremely liberal on immigration and some of the relaxing. So we were supposed to have, after Brexit, Liam, you'll cast your mind back now, we were promised quite a tough Australian-style points-based system. So we would be letting into the country the high-skilled people that we needed for particular sectors. And what's happened is that the criteria have been diluted and diluted to the point it's absolutely ludicrous. It was supposed to be a minimum salary of 26,000. I think in some cases, it's now a salary of 20,000. Way below the average wage. Way below the average wage. I'm not even going to say it, but they are extracting the urine on a big scale here. And this is bad faith towards the British people. It's completely outrageous. And as we've said Ad nauseam on planet normal at a time when public services are struggling to provide any kind of response for the people who are living here already. Now, just quickly, some Velma stats, which I know planet normal listeners always rely on. You're going to make a noise. <laughs> Got my <laughs> specs on. So we're seeing people of the likes of Grant Shapps and Jeremy Hunt who are extremely relaxed about this level of. Migration with their multi-million-pound property portfolios, but this comes from our friend Alp Memet at Migration Watch. So, over the past twenty years, the population of the UK has risen by eight million. Now, nearly seven million. Eighty-five percent of that is due to migrants coming in, and the children of migrants. And this population explosion happened, Lim. listen to this. You're good at this maths, okay? That population explosion happened with net migration of about 245,000 per annum. We are now approaching four times that. So what's that going to lead to? If we've had 8 million more people in 20 years, in another 20 years, we're going to have four times that. So the pressure of numbers on housing... Somebody calculated this week, we need 360,000 new houses a year to accommodate this vast influx. How many were building? 360, I think, You know, if, if they can get the planning permission. So we've got this vast pressure on public services unmatched by enhanced infrastructure. And I think we are rapidly you know, going to turn into the kind of failed state that many of these migrants are trying to escape.
1: I agree with you that immigration is very much a a touchstone issue. And I fully agree that unless a government is seen to have control over immigration, then more extreme political forces come to the fore and grab mainstream votes. And that's a very dangerous place to be. And clearly, the British government has now lost control of immigration. I think there are special factors that are driving the numbers for this latest year, not least the number of people we've let in from Hong Kong. There's been no resistance to that at all.
0: And Ukraine, of course.
1: And then indeed, of course, Ukraine. And again, that's been broadly supported. But the government could use this number, this really high number to its advantage, saying, you see, this is what we're talking about. This is why we've been talking about changing the ECHR. It could try and turn a situation that's been seen to be only of concern to extreme people into a situation that is acknowledged by the mainstream as badly needing addressing. I, I completely agree that's a really difficult political stunt to pull off, but we'll see what happens. And I agree with you also that this is an issue that upsets people not just in the Tory shires, but across the Red Wall as well. You know, lots of coastal communities that tend to vote Labour, lots of less well-off communities, communities that bear the brunt of influxes of immigration at this level when we haven't even thought about the infrastructure to try and accommodate this number of people. And it may be that thinking about changing ECHR, thinking about questioning that sort of sacred text that British lawyers wrote in the aftermath of the Second World War and we were the first signatories of and all the rest of it. It was written a long time ago mm. and clearly it's open to quite severe abuse, as some politicians have been saying. So Rishi Sunak, I think, is going to take uh, blows. It'll be interesting to see what happens when that immigration number comes out, what Sweller Braveman does. You suggested in your column, maybe the Home Secretary could do a sort of principled resignation, maybe with a kind of bit of topspin of, I told you so, this is what I've been talking about, no one's listening to me. So the politics around that number are going to be extremely interesting.
0: I think that the ECHR is one issue, particularly obviously for stopping the small boats, but... These huge increases, Liam, these are being brought about by actual decisions taken by the Conservative government. They can't blame it on anyone else. They have the power to cut them drastically, these numbers, and they're choosing not to. And Ella Braverman made a really barnstorming speech this week at that National Conservatism Conference, insisting that it wasn't xenophobic to say that mass and such rapid migration you know it's not xenophobic to say that it's unsustainable which i certainly think think it is unsustainable and that you know this drive towards multiculturalism just as a just done on the off chance is a recipe potential recipe for community disaster now suela braverman apparently we learned yesterday had put four or five very sensible immigration reforms forward they were blocked by cabinet colleagues. So this is where we are, Lee, and we are seeing the globalists who care more about international money coming into the system than they care about opportunity for ordinary British people. Now, we've had very interesting emails from parents of students. I'm going to read one of those out later, but it should be utterly shocking That there are 200,000 students from outside the UK at our top Russell Group universities. So 34% of all students at Britain's best universities are rich. Foreign students. And we've been hearing from people who say their kids with great grades in this country can't get a look in. But kids, rich kids in their school who can pay £29,000 a year and are Chinese, are getting the places. I mean, this is absolutely unacceptable. And not to mention the fact, you can tell how cross I am. I'm fuming, fuming. (laughs) Why has the United Kingdom admitted 136,000 dependents of foreign students? Do you remember taking your mum to university, Liam? (laughs) And just to finish, the net migration rate in France last year was 161,000. So there's a country that cares about preserving its ethos, its culture And it's language. Unlike us, we are a motel, not a home, Halligan. And I'm disgusted. And I do think this is the end of days now for the Conservatives. I cannot see anything that Rishi Sunak can say to Tory voters that will persuade them to vote for him.
1: I do think consensuses are shifting on a lot of these issues. The Overton window is shifting I think this really, really high immigration number showing that the numbers are out of control now will lead to some soul searching among mainstream journalists, among mainstream politicians that we do actually need to do something about this. Similarly, on housing as well and on tax. Yeah. This IFS report, Institute of Fiscal Studies, the IFS, I know a lot of people that that work there, they're broadly a kind of centre left you know, they kind of like tax and big government. And they're not the Adam Smith Institute or the Institute for Economic <laughs> <laughs> Affairs by any means, but they are very good at adding up and they are generally an honest institution. And they've put this report out earlier this week saying that the impact of freezing tax thresholds, so that's the, the where tax starts at 12 and a half grand roughly, yeah. where you pay 40% rather than 20% above just over 50 grand. Those thresholds under then-Chancellor Sunak and now-Chancellor Hunt have been frozen until 2027, 2028, which is astonishing. We've seen that average wages went up over the last three months compared to the same period last year by you know, 6 or 7%, depending on whether you're in the public or private sector. But, of course, inflation was 10%. So people's real wages after inflation are still going down. But more than that, because the tax thresholds are frozen as wages go up in nominal terms, and inflation goes up, more of your diminished wages are then taken by tax. So as the IFS brilliantly pointed out, by 2027-2028, a fifth of the workforce will be paying tax at 40%. Alison, that's a quarter of nurses. It's a third of police officers. It's people working in construction. It's completely mad. These are not wealthy people. Why are they paying tax at 40%? And this just belies the, the complete lack of understanding among a lot of Treasury officials and indeed ministers who refuse to push back or don't push back hard enough. That... It's not that people get into the top tax bracket and then are super wealthy and stay there. A lot of the population, they flit in and out of the top tax bracket. Mm. They want to do a family holiday. They work really hard to get that extra money. They want to build a little modest extension on their modest home so maybe an aged parent can live with them or they can have an extra kid. They work really hard for a year. They get that money. They want to buy a car. They want to buy a new fridge. These are really important things and they may just about push themselves into the top tax bracket. And there you are trying to improve the lot of yourself and your family, trying to push on, trying to make the people who depend on you proud of you, trying to make life better, trying to grow the economy. Mm. And for every extra pound you earn by making that huge effort, the state takes 40% plus 11 12% national insurance, more than half. Bang! At 50 grand. You're not wealthy if you're earning 50 grand at all. Even outside of London and the southeast, that is not a huge wage. And why, oh, why are the Tories introducing this massive stealth tax? Again, an incredible IFS number because it's the IFS. It can't be challenged in terms of the quality of the calculations. The freezing of these tax thresholds by Sunak and then Hunt, the extra tax that that entails, it's equivalent to putting four pence on the basic rate of income tax. Imagine if the Tories raised the basic rate of income tax from 20p to 24p. Well, that's what they've just done, but without telling anyone. And so still a lot of the population don't get what's happening, this stealth tax by the freezing of thresholds, this fiscal drag. But a lot of backbenchers get it, and a lot of, as I said, the squeeze middle are feeling this badly, and this is going to backfire on the Tories.
0: Well, it's very well explained, Liam. I mean, it's so sneaky and it's a complete kick in the teeth, isn't it, for hardworking families, the people who are supposed to be conservative voters. And this is what I don't understand. Have they got a death wish? Why are cabinet members telling Suella Braverman to go away with your reforms to immigration. What is wrong with them? I mean, it's as, it's as if, have they, you know, are they resigned to defeat? That's what I can't work out. And we also have, of course, a huge problem with getting people to work anyway. So where's the incentive to get people to go back to work if they're going to have all this money taken away from them? I mean, the figures here also are absolutely astounding. So we've got between 5 and 7 million people under the age of 65 who are not in work. And of course, Liam, some of those will be students and parents who are at home looking after kids. But a huge number are on benefits or on long-term sick. Now, this long-term sick number is absolutely astounding as well, isn't it? It's two and a half million. Two and a half million people on long-term sick. That's 8% of the workforce. I mean, is the country just sort of fallen into idleness, sickness or something. I mean, to be fair, there is immense trouble getting hospital treatment. So to some extent, there will be some people. We've heard from Dr. Claire in London, who tells us on Planet Normal that she's seeing lots of patients like a jeweler with cataracts, so he can't work, a teacher with an incredibly bad knee, so she can't go into work. So quite a few of the long-term sick will be people who cannot get treatment on the NHS.
1: Yeah, a lot of these trends are worrying, Alison. That number of long-term sick was published by the ONS earlier this week. Some of it was attributed to long COVID. Some of it was attributed by our national statistician to people working from home. So they've got sore necks because their chairs and desks at home are a little bit dodgy, I ask you. Of course, there are some people who are waiting patiently and in pain for... NHS operations. And of course, there are some people who are just long term sick. And that's absolutely fair enough. We should look after them. But the increase in the numbers have been so sharp in recent months and years as to be very, very worrying. I must say, though, for all us railing against the Tories, where is the policy offering from Labour? It's Mm. nowhere. Keir Starmer seems to be determined to do things like, you know, changing the electorate, giving EU citizens a vote, giving 16 year olds a vote in order to try and win power that way. These are tough days for those of us, Alison, who believe in democracy. Let's hope that our political classes can come up with something a bit more interesting sometime soon. I do
0: apologise for interrupting your podcast listening, but I wanted to pop in to tell you about another Telegraph podcast. Mine! I'm Christopher Hope, also known as
1: Chopper, and I'm one of the paper's long-standing political reporters and host of a weekly podcast called Chopper's Politics. It's full to the brim with political insight and Westminster gossip, recorded from the heart of the action in the Red Lion pub just around the corner from Parliament and Downing Street, Each episode I chat to the movers and shakers in British politics. So pull off a pew and join me for your dose of analysis, news and views on Chopper's politics. Find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Cheerio!
0: Stepping aboard the rocket this week is one of our bravest, most principled and thoughtful members of Parliament. Danny Kruger has been Tory MP for Devizes in Wiltshire since 2019. After university, Danny worked at the Centre for Policy Studies think tank, then becoming a policy advisor for the Conservative Party, as well as being a leader writer for the Daily Telegraph. Danny became David Cameron's chief speechwriter in 2006, allegedly coining the hugger hoodie line. He left Downing Street to work full-time at a terrific youth crime prevention charity that he co-founded called Only Connect. Danny Kruger has championed controversial causes in Parliament that other politicians shy away from, one reason I admire him so much. He's outspoken now on the potential dangers of the World Health Treaty, which would cede the UK's control to the World Health Organization in a future pandemic. He was also an advocate for the welfare of children during lockdown and has questioned the need to roll out COVID vaccines to younger people. Keenly aware of the failures of the Conservative government to listen to the people in recent years, with a refreshing honesty, Danny Kruger gave a powerful speech on that subject this week at the National Conservatism Conference in London. So I began by asking Danny Kruger, could you tell Planet Normal listeners what national conservatism means?
2: Well, I think of it as conservatism. The word national was given to it by this American academic, Yoram Pezzoni, who's written a really good book called National Conservatism. And his argument is that actually the British conservative tradition gave to the world a set of ideas that have been a great blessing. And in a sense, this conference was those ideas coming home. The word national is simply because, particularly in an American context, around the American Revolution, there was an argument between those who thought you needed a strong central state and those who thought you should uh, have, a, have a more distributed power system. And and, and he's in that tradition, a Hamiltonian tradition of mm. believing in the need for a federal government. It doesn't really work in our context, I don't think. And the word national has all sorts of possibly unhelpful resonances with us. But really, the conference was an attempt by a bunch of us to restate some pretty fundamental things about our political tradition and the need for a strong set of Conservative policies to face the challenges that we're in today.
0: We've seen two major Tory gatherings this week. They looked a little bit like party conferences. The National Conservatism, one that you were at, and the Conservative Democratic Organisation, which campaigns to ensure that the Conservative Party is representative of the membership and fairly represents their views. And that that organisation really came about after Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, both firm favourites the members, were defenestrated in their different ways. Danny, is there a battle now for the soul of the Conservative Party?
2: I think there's a battle in every generation about how the Conservative Party adapts to the new challenges of the time. And it's true we've got a tension at the moment between those who think we need to restore or to reach into those deeper beliefs and principles that I think are at the heart of the Conservative philosophy, and, and which includes by the way, proper party democracy and a respect for our members and our voters, you know, the Conservative Party became great in the 19th century, because Disraeli mm. recognised that it was by enfranchising working people that he would build a coalition for political success. And, and that has been our record. And we need to do that in these times as well. So I support that aspiration. But there's another tradition, which was also very respectable, which is that we need to govern, as it were, respectably and responsibly, and in a way that Times with the emerging aspirations and attitudes of of the people who might not be such traditional conservatives as we are. So, you know, the, the success of our party is always about bridging the gap between the base and those floating voters in the middle, recognizing we need to modernise all the time, but being true to our core beliefs. And you know, that's a that's a rhetorical bridge I've just tried to describe there that doesn't really give you an answer about what we should actually do in the present. But I don't think the fact that there is a conversation going on in our party is particularly remarkable. In fact, I think it's very helpful and necessary. I have my own views about how we should be resolving it, but I don't think there's anything wrong with having this debate in public.
0: We have just seen that pretty disastrous set of local election results for the Tories. Many lifelong Conservative voters are telling us on Planet Normal they are bitterly disillusioned or actually incredibly angry. Mm. They think the party has wasted an 80-seat majority, isn't behaving in what they consider to be a remotely Conservative manner. The government isn't fighting back enough against woke. Taxes are at this staggering level and while public services are collapsing, Do you understand why so many previously loyal Conservative voters feel now that they are politically homeless?
2: Well, I do agree with a lot of that analysis, I'm afraid. I think that in 2019, well, first in 2016 with the referendum and then in 2019 with our election, we were given an instruction by the British people to introduce some profound changes to the way Mm. things were going, and I think with... COVID and then with our own internal turmoil, we have not yet convinced people that we've delivered on the mandate that was given to us. And we now have 18 months in which we need to do that. But that list of complaints that you just gave, Alison, I'm afraid it's fair. There is a cultural disarray going on that has risen on our watch, not willfully by conservatives, but the whole woke agenda has happened while we've been in power over the last decade or so. Mm. We do have a problem with unsustainable tax burden, rates of immigration unacceptably high, and the standard of services that that people receive in health service from police and so on, in too many places aren't nearly good enough. And I think we can rise to those challenges, and that is what our party needs to do. But we do, yes, we do need to recognise that people are understandably and justifiably frustrated with the way things are.
0: Danny Finkelstein, Lord Finkelstein, has an article in The Times today, that's Wednesday, dismissing concerns about the blob, so-called blob. But we have seen, you've said in your speech, didn't you, that there do seem to be attempts by the civil service or whoever to derail ministers who are trying to push through the will of the people as expressed in the ballot box.
2: Yes, I haven't read Danny's article, but... My view is that we have a force at the heart of government, which is the civil service and and politicians supporting it, who want to resist the mandate that was given by the public to the government in 2019, which is about reorienting our economy and our public services and insofar as government influences the culture, setting a new direction for the culture too. And the fact is that The civil service, in all good faith, thinking they're doing the right thing, don't believe in what the government wants to do and don't agree with what the public wants. And we're seeing it particularly with the EU retained law bill, which is Mm. in Parliament at the moment. The difficulty the government has there is that the civil servants who are instructed to identify a small number of laws that should be retained from the EU, necessary laws that need to continue on our statute books which is only a minority of the thousands and thousands of laws that were passed through on the nod without anybody even looking at them from, from the EU over the decade. The civil servants, instead of identifying the small number that need to be retained, have, have just introduced a blanket defence of the whole package
0: mm.
2: and have come up with a handful of totally irrelevant laws that can be successfully dropped. So they've, they've as it were, turned the whole principle of their instruction around. So, And, you know, we could also blame ministers for that. I don't think it's fair just to blame the civil servants. The ministers need to take responsibility for what the departments do. But there's only so much that they can do, and I'm sure that they've been giving the right instructions into the system. But there is a problem with the system.
0: It's been said by certain people in the government that it wasn't to do with obstruction. Are you are you saying that the civil servants basically didn't want to do that, to get rid of those EU-retained laws?
2: Yes. I, I, my, the impression I have is that the, uh, the civil servants didn't agree with the expectation. I mean, it might not have been particularly ideological, although although I suspect there is an ideological bias there. It's because it involved a lot of complicated and difficult work. And again, perhaps the government's to blame for not adequately resourcing or mandating the system to go through the rule book, the European rule book, in the time they had. And and ultimately, ministers are responsible. But really, I I, I think the reason the ministers have had the difficulty they've had is because they haven't had a, uh, a bureaucracy which is willing to do the job that's
0: been given to it. Danny, in your speech at the conference, you said, and I'm quoting, conservatism is grounded in a recognition of our responsibilities to each other. The Brexit vote and Boris Johnson's victory in 2019 were rejections of globalisation, liberalisation and modernization. The progressive promise was abandoning the family and the neighbourhood so we'd get richer. Now, I agree with you, but so tell me, How is a Conservative government permitting annual net immigration of up to a million people compatible with protecting British families and neighbourhoods from globalisation?
2: Well, it's not, (laughs) and we need to reverse the growth in migration very uh, deliberately. Well, we'll see what the figures are. They might not be as high as a million, but even if they're half that, it's way too much. I mean, do do remember we've taken in hundreds of thousands of people on humanitarian visas over the Mm. last year, on Kongers and Ukrainians, so I would take those out of the things. I think it's right that we've done that.
0: but It's still broken, the promise in the 2019 Tory manifesto of bringing down immigration. That was what millions right, of people...
2: That's right. That is our mandate. I mean, if there was any instruction the public gave through its votes over the last five or seven years, it's been that they want immigration to come down. There's absolutely no question about what the public's view is on that, with illegal migration, obviously, out the outrage of the, of the channel crossings mm. which the government is tackling. But more substantially, this unacceptable rate of illegal migration of people coming here on visas, many of them students, many of them family members of students, many of them coming to take jobs that are actually pretty low paid and could be done by British workers. So we've absolutely got to honour our promise to the public to lower migration and I am conversations going on in government around that now. You know, you will recognise the arguments on the other side, which is that we have all these vacancies in key sectors and that we couldn't turn the tap off foreign labour off just overnight, which I respect. But we have to be very deliberate about the direction of travel, and start putting in place measures now to train up our own people and incentivize them to do the jobs that are needed. By the way, because that will encourage businesses to invest meaningfully in training and skills, but also in machinery, in technology that can do the jobs that at the moment low paid foreign workers are doing. So it'll be transformative of our economy as a whole if we turn off the slowly, I mean, deliberately but progressively, to turn off the tap of cheap foreign labour.
0: But you're talking about it in, you know, in lovely moderate terms, but it is a kind of emergency, it seems to me, and it could be another nail in the Conservative coffin when the figures come out next Thursday. Now, Suehler Braverman was very outspoken this week saying that this incredibly high legal immigration hat to come down because, of course, it's putting a burden on public services and poses a threat to the social cohesion, Danny, which you describe very well. Yet now we hear that Soella Broverman's cabinet colleagues, some of them are opposing the perfectly sensible measures she is proposing to bring that huge number down. Now, I'm getting the feeling the Conservative government is divided over immigration. We seem to have people in the Treasury who are prepared to treat the British people as precisely the kind of alienated units that you rail against, yet those forces mm. are at work in our own Chancellor of the Exchequer and Treasury, I think.
2: Well, there's certainly a tension there, and I, I would blame, again, not, not, not wanting to point a finger at officials, but the system as a whole is set up to promote more migration because we measure GDP in terms of the overall output of the economy. And of course, if you bring in more workers, they're going to be producing more economic activity. But the key metric should be GDP per head. How much is the the population being benefited by economic growth? Mm, Yes. And of course, migration at the levels we've got, and particularly low-skilled migration, reduces GDP per head. It makes us each individually poorer, even if the country as a whole is getting richer because the people who are coming in on a net basis are earning less, producing less per person. So... We need to change the model and then the Treasury will be incentivized. I think there's other things we can do, by the way. I think the Migration Advisory Committee, which advises the government on appropriate levels of migration. At the moment, it just looks at what the needs of the labour markets are, again, in quite a static way, rather than thinking, how would, how should we be incentivising training and improvements in productivity? Why doesn't it look at housing? Why doesn't it look at the pressure on product services? Why doesn't it look at our future pensions commitments? There's are just ways you measure these things it will get to a more realistic basis. But yes, I mean, it's fair to say, Alison, that there will be a division. There is a sort of liberal conservative tradition which believes in free movement of of goods and people across borders and thinks that that is a helpful way to run an economy. I think we need to restore the principle of of national sovereignty and as much self-sufficiency as is is practical in terms of producing our own goods, not being reliant on on imports, not being reliant on foreign labour and having a, more genuinely productive and frankly more local economy where jobs can be done closer to home, not over financialized. It's not all about the big cities. We need to restore the, the local basis of our economy, which gives the jobs that people want and enables them to have the lives that they want, which is investing in their families and in their communities rather than just commuting to a distant job.
0: Hmm. Danny, you, you, you're known as a, as a firm Christian. People will have seen fantastic documentary you did with your mother, Proulis and your varying views on assisted dying. Now, you said this week in your speech quite controversially about calling something the normative family held together by marriage, by mother and father sticking together for the sake of the children and the sake of their own parents and for the sake of themselves. This is the only possible basis for a safe and successful society. Now, number 10, distance itself from your remarks. How do you think those Christian views, do, do you think they are reconcilable with a modern society where we have very, very different family setups now?
2: Well, absolutely. And I don't think you need to be a Christian to believe in the, what I call the normative model. And by normative, I don't mean the only model or the, the model that people should be required to adopt. The fact is, if you have a society that has sufficient numbers of marriages in it, then that society will be stronger. And there will be opportunities for people who have all sorts of different family models, all of which can be totally successful. We all know this from our own lives. I'm not so stupid or so unpleasant to, to suggest that only the straight married family is the place to bring children up. We all know very successful families that don't conform to that norm. But I do think that society has been built and can only really prosper if the basis of it is the principle that if you have children with somebody but the, the ideal is that you stick together with that person through the whole of your child's life. They're then brought up in a stable home. As I say, many, many occasions on which that isn't possible. In fact, it's not the right thing to do, particularly if there's abuse. Mm. But as a principle, as a, as a model, it's the one that is the basis of a flourishing society. And I want to see more marriages and more stability. And I don't think it's right that we can just be neutral and say that it doesn't matter what kind of models of family that that the government supports, it has to more or less take decisions. At the moment, we incentivise family breakdown rather than family stability. So that's the point I was making. It's unfortunate that people deliberately misinterpret it as some sort of attack on people who live in different ways.
0: You've recently spoken in Parliament about the World Health Treaty. This is causing, I have to say, a lot of alarm amongst those of us who were lockdown sceptics. The idea of this treaty, as I understand it, which the UK plans to sign, is to enhance global cooperation during another health emergency. That sounds great, Danny, but it would actually surrender the right for countries to act independently. Given that Sweden now looks justified in defying the international consensus, should the UK really be signing a treaty which might compel us to lockdown again in the future?
2: No, we absolutely shouldn't. And I've spoken about this. In Parliament, I think the draft treaty and and even more worryingly, the amendments to the international health regulations, which actually would give greater powers to the World Health Organization, these drafts are very, very worrying. I am confident that this country and others like the US aren't going to accept the treaty and and the amendments as proposed, but we do need to make the case very forcibly that they should not. And crucially, my argument to the government is that they need to ensure that Parliament has a proper say over what we do. The great scandal of the COVID era wasn't just the the mistakes that were made, because they were made in good faith, I believe. It was the fact that Parliament itself was sidelined and, in a sense, abandoned its own duty to hold the government to account. So this time round, or next time, in preparation for the next time, there'll be something, won't there, even if it's not a Mm. pandemic. There'll be a war or a financial crisis or technological disruption or something that will lead people to say we need a big global top lockdown, government-led solution, and you know we should sacrifice liberty in order to ensure to security. If we're going to take any steps in that direction, Parliament, again, it goes back to the point about national conservatism. It is nation-states that have the sovereignty and the legitimacy to approve any restrictions of liberty. We cannot have these things imposed from beyond our shores, and we can't have government acting without parliamentary approval either.
0: Danny, you're a member of the all-party parliamentary group on COVID-19 vaccine damage. I have to tell you, I've been quite shocked to see how few of your MP colleagues have bothered to stay for any of these debates on things which we know have affected a lot of people. And you have said, of course, there are lunatics who make outrageous claims but there are many reasonable, respectable people who have anxieties about the vaccine programs, particularly those who've suffered as a result. Do you think the yellow card reporting system has perhaps understated the side effects from the COVID jabs? And are you concerned about the independence of the MRA, that's our medicines regulator, which to me seems to have been much slower than other countries to respond, for example, to the linking of the AstraZeneca jab, which was linked in rare cases to blood clots. Now, that was withdrawn in Denmark and other countries months before our regulator took action.
2: So, I do think the yellow card system underreports. In fact, I think the MHRA itself acknowledges that there's underreporting through the yellow card system. I think that the MHRA itself has a lot of questions to answer about the approval process for the vaccines and, and their response to stories of vaccine damage, which I recognise as well. And I think every MP does. And I share your concern that my, my colleagues are prepared to talk publicly about this. But we have questions to ask about how we regulate the development of, of, of new medicines because the MHRA, rather like the World Health Organisation, I'm afraid to say, Itself largely funded by the uh, pharmaceutical industry, and therefore there, there I think there are conflicts of interest there. Government is responsible for the vaccine payments system, which again is not working adequately. People are waiting far too long, and they have to meet a very high bar to get any sort of compensation or support. And my heart goes out to many people who write to me detailing the. Harm that's been done to them, acknowledged harm. This isn't them being conspiracists. This is their doctors have confirmed that they've suffered the side effects of the vaccines. So mm. Not being treated well and not being compensated. So I think those practical questions really do need addressing. And more broadly on the vaccines, my great question is why we ever extended the, uh, the rollout of the vaccines beyond the vulnerable yeah. who it was originally intended for and down the age range, including children. I think we do need to understand how it was that. A treatment that was only intended for the elderly became a sort of compulsory, almost compulsory uh, measure for almost everybody.
0: What's the answer, Danny? I mean, are we talking cock-up or conspiracy here? Because I spoke out against vaccinating children, which as far as I could see had almost no benefit and a small risk, but some risk. We never, ever give treatments to people where the risk outweighs the benefit, and we certainly don't give it to children who were getting COVID and recovering mainly incredibly quickly, I was actually banned from Twitter for saying that children shouldn't be vaccinated. Yeah. What on earth was going on with this uh, censorship of perfectly legitimate debate? I, I find it really alarming that that happened in my country.
2: So do I, Alison. And I share your concern. I think it's absolutely right that many, many people continue to talk about that episode and how it was that it. Cock-up conspiracy. Well, I, I I think it was, well, it wasn't a cock-up in the sense that it was a deliberate set of decisions made by a large number of people. I never believed that there was some sort of conspiracy in the sense of a group of people sitting at a you know hilltop in Switzerland cooking up a plan to mm. depopulate the world or, or, or things like that. But what, what I think is that many, many people, millions of people, including most of us at the time, and certainly us MPs, found ourselves in agreement with each other. We followed the herd. And interests were aligned. This is the issue I think around vaccination. Lots of very well-meaning well-intentioned people trying to save lives, but they found that their interests, the interests of the pharmaceutical companies and of the government and of the media, all aligned around the idea that we needed to promote more and more of this solution. And it wasn't just the vaccines, it was the whole way we approached COVID, including you know, mass lockdowns, the centralization. Of the response when we should have been doing everything much more locally, mm. including the test and trace, including the support of the vulnerable. We should have trusted local communities much more than we did. But we centralized and bureaucratized and sort of dehumanized the response. And, and, and the vaccines then came on top of that as a sort of last expression of it the idea that the government can roll out some big universal system on top of the country. And I think that was why it was sort of became, it had its own compulsion. It went beyond just vaccinating the vulnerable, which you can understand the rationale for. And then, then it became this preventative measure for the whole country. And as you say, children for whom the benefit was absolutely nil. So I don't accept that there's some evil scheme. I don't think there are people acting in bad faith. People trying to do their best. And, you know, the government was really, really working hard to try and save lives and protect the public. But I think we've got a lot to learn about how our, how how different interests aligned and how we all just went along with the the plan because we thought we should and we needed more dissenting voices and yours was really important at the time and others who now turn out to have been prophetic, who I think need, need recognition.
0: Should we as a society be ashamed that we issued a mandate for care home workers to be vaccinated when there was no need for that mandate?
2: Yes, we should, and I've publicly apologised for voting for that. That was my most shameful act in the whole episode. I was part of the little rebellion that stopped us extending that to health workers, if you remember, and, in fact, the whole Plan B episode, if you remember. Mm. So we we, we found our spine, but very late, and I regret particularly that. I would think we should be um, seeking to give them some redress for losing their jobs.
0: Well, you have been distinguished as one of the braver MPs, and we're very grateful for that. Finally, Danny Kruger, on a personal note, we are huge fans on Planet Normal of your magnificent mother, Prue <laughs> Leith. Yeah. force of nature, force of everything. Yeah, I know that Prue voted leave, which made her almost unique in media and TV circles. Were you proud of her for making that public?
2: Yeah, I am very proud of her. I mean, the great thing about my mum, and I think why is she so Popular. This is my personal perspective. Is that she's just herself on TV and off. Mm. Just getting exactly the same person. So she's completely relaxed as a performer, and that authenticity comes through. Yeah. And and she takes bold positions on things. I mean, she's often wrong. She's totally wrong about sister dying, <laughs> uh, but she she doesn't mind uh, taking. Positions. She would have been a very good politician. She, you know, she she uh, she would have been really good in the job I do. I think, and
0: uh, yeah, I'm very very proud of her. Danny Kruger, thanks so much for being our guest. Thank you, Alison.
1: Well, I must say, Alison, Danny Kruger is a very thoughtful guy. He's a former political secretary to Boris Johnson, of course. He really is a link back to that administration. But he's very different from Boris Johnson. He's much more socially conservative in many ways, perhaps reflecting his upbringing in South Africa. But what really struck me, I think the headline out of that, is he seems to be coming to... Kemi Badenoch's rescue because she has been taking brickbats for retreating in the eyes of some Tory backbenchers when it comes to rescinding a lot of those EU laws. But here we have a consummate political insider, not somebody who shoots from the hip, somebody widely recognised as being very thoughtful, saying, indeed, it is Whitehall who have been putting the mockers on this. It's Danny Kruger versus The Blob.
0: Yes, and that follows an article in The Times by Danny Finkelstein, Lord Finkelstein, vehemently asserting that, of course, it's not the blob that's preventing any of this happening, but that's not what the other Danny Kruger says. And I thought that was very, very revealing. He said, basically, they don't want to do it, so they haven't done it. And I think that's very, very troubling for democracy. But I think Danny is, as you say, extremely thoughtful, very compassionate man, ran a youth charity, I think has this sort of compassionate conservatism running through him. And I'd be very keen to see him taking a leading role when whatever emerges from the burning ashes of the Conservative Party in
1: 2024. It does make you wonder, doesn't it, if Rishi Sunak is going to change. Rishi Sunak cannot ignore Danny Kruger as some kind of mad and bad backbencher. This isn't just some unthinking Neanderthal from the ERG, as (laughs) Downing Street so often characterised that limb of the Conservative Party, by the way. This is a very thoughtful bloke who has operated at the centre of power. He's toilet-trained politically. He's trusted right across the Conservative Party. And for him to be positioning himself, not only going to this conference, but making a very eye-catching speech, and then, you know, frankly... Climbing Aboard the Rocket to Planet Normal, a podcast that's listened to assiduously across the Conservative Party, as indeed it's listened to across other parts of the political spectrum as well. This is quite a big move by somebody who totally understands how to make a splash and how to use the media. I thought his tones were measured. He wasn't engaging in hyperbole, but there were a lot of really quite pointed criticisms in what he said, particularly when it comes to why isn't the government pushing back more against a lot of these sort of culture war Mm. issues? I really believe this is Labour's Achilles heel. As a political analyst, I know so many people my age who are natural Labour voters who are absolutely incensed about a lot of the Trans stuff, the culture war stuff, the canceling people on campus stuff, and the Tories could really make hay on that. And the only cabinet minister I see really going for that is the previously mentioned Kemi Badenoch, as somebody's pushing back against woke, if you like, for want of a better word. And I think Danny Kruger is pushing for more of that too, because again, these are issues that they don't keep people in the red wall up at night, they don't keep people in the shires up at night, but they are still annoying and important. And I think there's a lot of mileage for the Conservative Party in really exploiting Labour's weakness and the fact that Labour is completely split over these issues. And that's how you smoke out the kind of madder and badder elements of the Labour Party, by pushing, forcing their leader to start speaking common sense when it comes to some of these issues.
0: Now onto our listener emails, the fantastic messages you send to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We do love. Reading your thoughts. A lot of people very exercised this week, co-pilot, about immigration. I wonder why. Anna says the Conservative government has shamefully squandered the goodwill that was bestowed upon it by the public in 2019. For this, the lockdown catastrophe and so much more, they deserve to be politically obliterated. And Bernard says, dear Alison and Liam, still loving the podcast. Last week you calculated that net immigration to this country over the last two years would exceed one million people. I'm pretty sure you said net immigration. And these immigrants have entered legally, presumably to work or study. Mel Stride, the minister, is quoted in the Daily Telegraph saying that the workforce is 400,000 down on the pre-COVID level, and he wants these people to go back to work so the Chancellor can reduce income tax by 2%. He didn't actually say that, but you get the drift. Surely this does not compute with the population increase caused by net immigration in excess of 1 million since lockdown restrictions were loosened at the start of 2022, unless it is explained by one of the following, says Bernard. One, the actual number of workers that left work during the pandemic and did not return was nearer 1.5 million. Is this likely? Two, all the immigrants are children, students or pensioners. Is this likely? Three, All the immigrants are unemployed or actually asylum seekers and unable to work. Is this likely? And four, the government can't count. Is this likely? Don't answer that, says Bernard. And finally, I really like this, Liam. This was someone on my Twitter thread called Dreamkiller. Watching the Tories screw us over immigration and knowing that the only real alternative is labour is like accidentally drinking Domestos and realising the only thing you have to water it down with is rat poison. (laughs) This is from Jilly, not her real name. I'm writing to share my son's experience with you. It is by no means unique, but it should serve as a wake-up call. My son, Jamie, is a pupil at a well-known private school. At GCSE, he elected to take 13 subjects, and he achieved 13 grades at 9 level. At A level, he's doing computer science, maths, and physics, and is predicted two A stars and an A, although I suspect he will get the third A star. He didn't apply to Oxbridge, setting his sights on other Russell Group universities to study computer science. Only one offered him a place and he was rejected without reason by the other four universities. Why? Jamie has outstanding references, as an amazing sportsman and is involved in any number of extracurricular activities. He now informs me that of the 16 boys studying computer science at A level at his school, 14 have offers from Jamie's preferred choices of university. Why? Well, the two boys that don't are white and British. The other 14 are ethnic minority and crucially are international students willing to pay £29,000 a year in university fees. They are almost all Chinese nationals. Why aren't we training our brightest and best? The universities have suggested my son will be accepted for a more general, lesser business degree. Why should he downgrade his studies? This country is failing my son and so many other young people like him.
1: That's an astonishing email. Wow. This is from George, and we've had several along these lines, haven't we, Alison, from GPs? We
0: have, yes. And
1: we're delighted to highlight this issue. Dear Alison and Liam, I'm suggesting an easy way of relieving the GP shortage, says George. I retired after 40 years as a GP, and my last surgery was in October 2019. My registration was reinstated by the GMC at the beginning of the COVID scare when I volunteered to work, and is valid until this September. The only reason I retired was that I couldn't face my five-yearly reaccreditation, the culmination of five annual appraisals, a fatuous method of control by the powers that be, involving reflection and ambition as well as the endorsement of 20 colleagues as a difficult target as one's peers retire. There's no medical content other than recording that you've read a few journals. As a practice, we always relied on retired colleagues as locums, and a return to those halcyon days of exploiting experienced GPs would be a better cure for general practice than using students and other unqualified people. I still read journals and kept up to date, helped by my daughter being a GP, but I'm unemployed because of rules introduced by control-minded doctors who would rather dictate policy than practice medicine. Yours sincerely, George. Well, there's a policy suggestion, isn't there, Alison?
0: Could do it tomorrow. We
1: know this is because, you know, in the aftermath of Harold Shipman and all the rest of it, Mm. but the way to deal with those kind of situations isn't just more mindless admin. It seems crazy.
0: We've had several emails along exactly those lines from GPs. Some of them say they'd go back to the local surgery tomorrow to work as a locum, but they cannot face this revalidation and crazy amounts of testimonials you have to provide and one GP told us it was going to cost him £5,000 and we need GPs Liam I mean this is so simple and Rishi Sunak's response is what oh let's get pharmacists to do GPs jobs how about getting retired GPs to do GPs jobs and this is from Dennis Liam you are completely and entirely wrong goodness me don't allow things like that to be said Sunak is and will be a total and utter disaster if left in power, says Dennis. He and Johnson led the country to ruin after they spent £400 billion, keeping the whole country in completely unnecessary lockdowns. Both of these are total egoists and are convinced they are born to rule. I am surprised that Alison allowed you to spout this nonsense. Dennis, I don't get any choice in what he spouts. (laughs) The country and the Conservative Party need to elect a real Conservative, says Dennis, who has always believed in Brexit and who is not consumed in belief in himself. To me, John Redwood is a sane, pragmatic person that would be acceptable to the country at large. I'm not sure about that, Dennis, to be honest. If Labour and the other gang assume power, I would strongly advise that you need your children to learn Mandarin. Gosh, Dennis is in a good mood. Best wishes, Dennis. Nigel says you are quite correct, Alison and Liam. There must be many of us doctors who would willingly return to NHS work were it not for the excessive cost and bureaucracy associated with revalidation. The problem is the bureaucratic mindset which would oppose any legislative change, even though it appears that rates of death and disease in the United Kingdom are highest in the developed nations. How can that attitude be changed, says Nigel.
1: And on that bombshell with me, bludgeoned by Dennis. That's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week. It's Alison's turn.
0: Got to be Victoria. Fantastic email.
1: Indeed, Victoria. Send us an email to telegraph.quk in the subject heading. Put mug winner with your postal address and a Planet Normal mug will wing its way to you.
0: If you enjoy Planet Normal, and we certainly hope that you do, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find the podcast. So please go there and, and do that because we love reading them. It cheers us up, doesn't it, Copilot? It
1: certainly does. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the Madison Planet Earth, come back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bajard. Hooray! Elliot Lampett. Hooray! Hooray! Cass Ho. Hooray! Hooray! Louisa Wells. Hooray! Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me.
0: And it's goodbye from him.